Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 18 this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, even as we gather here this morning, we confess that our desire is for your glory. Because even as we sit here this morning, we confess and we admit and we recognize that you alone are worthy of glory. In fact, Heavenly Father, even this morning as we confess your your glory and your worthiness, we also recognize our unworthiness. We know our hearts. Lord, we are so prone to wonder How quick to turn to the things of this world in search of pleasure. How soon do we give in to doubt, to fear, to lust, to worry. We know our hearts, Lord, they're overrun by envy and by greed. We are eager, even like the children of Israel that we saw this morning in Joshua, we are eager to put idols where you alone belong. And yet we rejoice this morning, for you are a God of mercy and grace. And yes, we come undeserving, and yet we come boldly in Christ alone. And so even as a sinful people this morning, we sing with a gospel hope. We pray with a boldness informed by the resurrection. And we we wait with an eager patience, crying out from the bottom of our hearts, even so, come Lord Jesus. So it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we come this morning. And we pray that you would do a mighty work in each and every one of our lives. We pray that your word, that through your word, that you would teach, that you would reprove, that you would correct, that you would train us in righteousness for your sake. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me power this morning to preach with authority and with clarity. That your word would go forth and that it would not return void. But that you would reveal our sin, that you would heal our wounds, comfort our hurts, and point us back to Christ. That we may find healing at the foot of the cross. That we may find hope. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to change. Because we are a people in desperate need of your grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I remember the summer of 2008 fondly. It was a special year in my life. It was in 2008 that I graduated from high school. It was in 2008 that I went up to a camp in the middle of Michigan, a camp where I had never been to this camp before in my life. I knew not a soul on this camp. 
And yet I got on a plane in Greenville, South Carolina and flew up to Detroit. And I remember very clearly sitting on that plane and thinking, what in the world am I doing? And I arrived and some lady I'd never met before picked me up and drove me up to camp. And later that night, I met the woman I would end up marrying, Krista. <laughs> the Lord knew what he was doing. But I remember that summer, I, I showed up to camp ready to counsel and to be a lifeguard. I knew nothing about lifeguarding. It just seemed like kind of an easy job. You know, you sit by the pool all day. It's a great way to feel good about yourself. You know, I'm working at a camp, I'm ministering, but really I'm lifeguarding. But right before I left to go to camp, they called and said, actually, we need a counselor. So would you be able to both counsel and lifeguard? So that's what I ended up doing. So I remember I showed up at this camp, Camp Kobiak in Michigan, and for the first two weeks, there were no kids. In fact, what the staff did, it was staff training week. And so there was a lot in the evenings, there was a lot of preaching, a lot of training. And all during the days, the workers would be out raking. They'd be in, uh, clearing trails and cleaning buildings and cabins and getting everything ready to go for the summer. It was a lot of manual labor. It was hard work. But as a lifeguard, as well as a counselor, I kind of got out of all of that manual labor. Because I had to get trained to lifeguard that summer. So I remember the, the first few days, I was kind of, you know, like, dodge that bullet. I, I don't have to do all that raking. I get to just chill. I get to, I get to go swimming. I get to sit inside in air conditioning and, and watch videos. I get to, to train to be a lifeguard. But I remember it wasn't long before my attitude changed. In fact, it was, uh, I think, partway through the first week. I remember exactly where it was. I was on my knees, leaning over a dummy, uh, not a person, but a fake person, <laughs> leaning over a dummy, learning CPR. And I remember in that moment, it, it hit me like it had never hit me before, and I was actually jealous of those who were out raking, because in that moment, I understood the great responsibility that I had as a lifeguard. It wasn't just fun. But as I was, I was doing that, and they were talking about, you know, sometimes as you're pushing down, you might break some ribs and, and doing all this stuff. And I, I started thinking, like, if it gets to this point, someone's life is going to be in my hands. And that responsibility added weight, immense weight, to my task of training. In that moment, I, I recognized that there was great responsibility here. Someone, at some point throughout the summer, with the hundreds and hundreds of kids that were going to come through, there was a chance that someone's life would be in my hands. I realized the great importance of the task that I had been called to. It was not something to be taken lightly. I was not just to be laying down by the pool. I was to be engaged. In fact, that realization gave meaning, it gave purpose, it gave weight to everything that I ended up doing as a lifeguard that summer. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what it was about this passage this week, but as I was studying it, I had that kind of same realization. And I pray that this morning that this will be one of those moments for you as well. 
Because as we turn to Hebrews 10, 11 to 18 this morning, it is not a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternity. And this week, as I was praying and as I was studying, I was hit with the magnitude of the calling of preaching the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I came under the weight of this passage and and, and it felt like this was a perhaps the most urgent and important message that I have ever preached in my life. And I found myself praying this week, Lord, help me to preach as I have never preached before because this matters. Because this is real. And I pray that through this passage that, that you would be able to look past me and, to my, and my limitations and that you would see the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that through this passage that the Lord would wake us up from our slumber and renew our passion. Do you remember your first love? Do you remember when you were first saved that, that passion that you had for Jesus Christ? When you came under the conviction of your sin and you recognized all that Jesus had done for you in the cross. See, this is a passage that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel message. And I I confess that my great fear and my burden this morning is that maybe you are like me because when I first came to this passage, I'll confess My first thought was, another gospel message. I feel like I just did this last week. And maybe you're that same way. Maybe as as I'm I'm first getting through this introduction, you're sitting on the edge of your seat thinking, what in the world is he going to say? And then I announce it's another gospel message. And, And maybe you kind of sit back, or maybe you inwardly kind of roll your eyes, like just another gospel message. And brothers and sisters, that is my fear because there is no such thing as just another gospel message. When did the gospel become something that we so easily dismiss, so easily push to the side? When did the gospel, the story of God sending His Son to die for our sins with eternity at stake, when did that become ordinary? And I promise you, I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic this morning. I'm trying to give proper weight where proper rate, weight is due. The proper weight to the cross of Christ. I'm trying to call us out from our apathy to remember the power and the glory and the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be one of those moments for you like it was for me. That summer in Michigan, an eye-opening moment where the responsibility of your calling in Christ, your eyes are open to that and the weight of eternity is added to that. And it gives you an urgency to the call on your life in Christ. So I'd encourage you, even as we Turn to this passage. Maybe right now, even as I am talking, just pause and pray a short prayer, asking the Lord to work in you. 
Because it's not, it's not me that's going to work in you. It's the Lord working through his spirit, through the word of God. Lord, work in me this morning. Renew that passion. Open my eyes to the weight of the calling that is mine in Christ. So this morning, as we turn to this passage, we're going to see the triumph of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we see in verses 11 to 12 is the tri- or 11 to 14 is the triumph of Jesus Christ. Remember the context here in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to Jewish Christians, those who have been called to Christ out of Judaism. And to them there is comfort in the law. There is comfort in the priests. There is comfort in the sacrifices. And they, they want to run back to that. They want that, that concrete hope. That concrete thing that they can see. And the author of Hebrews is calling them to, to wake up. Don't you see that you are denying a living Savior and clinging to dying a dead law? You are in love with the shadow and you're ignoring the sun. Wake up and see the beauty of Jesus Christ. So here in, in verse 10, even transitioning here into to verse 11, the author of Hebrews says this, by that will we have been sanctified, we've been perfected, we've been made new, we have been saved. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Salvation comes in Christ alone. He doesn't say by that will you were sanctified, you were perfected, you were saved through the keeping of the law, through being better than those around you. It was in Christ alone, His sacrifice, His blood that was shed for you. And so as we turn now to verse 11, the author of Hebrews continues to drive home the fact that our salvation is in Christ alone. And here he stresses the, the futility, the emptiness, the powerlessness of these offerings. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly. Notice the language here. He stands, he is ministering daily, constantly, over and over again. These are the burnt offerings for sin that we see in Exodus 29-38 and Numbers 28-3. These sin offerings, these burnt offerings that are offered day in and day out, every day they repeat them. Over and over and over and over. And every day, the priest is standing there and he is doing that. In fact, note the word stand there because that's going to be a big deal. The author is going to contrast that later with Christ who sat down at the right hand of God. We get that, that concept. and I remember as a young man in my first job, one of the first things I learned is you do not sit down on the job. Right? There's always work to be done. That's the same thing with these priests. There was always work to be done. They were constantly standing They were ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, 
Not only were they standing daily offering sacrifices, it was the same sacrifice. They never progressed to another sacrifice further along. They're doing the same thing. The same sacrifice. Over and over and over. Repeatedly. Day in and day out. With no rest and no change. And nothing is different. It is never done and it is never different. And the shocking thing is what you see here at the end of verse 11. These same sacrifices that they offer over and over, they can never take away sins. We saw that last week in verses 1 to 10. They're just a shadow. All it's doing is pointing to something greater. It is just saying that blood must be shed and there is someone who is greater who is coming but they themselves can't take away sins. Then you come to verse 12. But, but, there's a comparison here. You see, in verse 11, the author can't be any more emphatic about the inadequacy of such sacrifices. Their work never ends and their work never progresses. They offer the same sacrifices. They do it repeatedly, and it illustrates the the futility of their ministry. But, in contrast to the futility of the law and these sacrifices, you see the effectiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ. But, this man, Jesus, as we see from verse 10, This man, Jesus Christ, who offered himself after he had offered one sacrifice. Note the comparison in this passage. The priests who are standing, they are constantly offering sacrifices, and they're constantly offering the same sacrifice over and over. But Jesus offers one sacrifice. He offers one sacrifice for sins forever. Never to be repeated again. Because unlike those sacrifices that are repeated over and over, this one's effective. So what did he do? After he had offered this sacrifice, his blood, for the sins of the world, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. See, the author of Hebrews actually is stressing this point. You may notice this language here. He sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. This is a, a passage taken from Psalm 110. It's the author of Hebrews' favorite verse because he constantly goes back to it. Psalm 110.1. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Go back with me to Hebrews 1.3. The author of Hebrews says this. Verse 2, he's spoken to us by his son. Verse 3, the son who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by his word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And turn to verse, look to verse 13. But to which of these angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Again, that's Psalm 110.1. 
Look with me to Hebrews 8, verse 1. This is the main point of the things that we are saying. All right, this is what I want you to get. This is everything I'm trying to say. That we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In chapter 10, verse 11, where we've come this morning, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeated the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see a theme there? Something that is repeated time and time again throughout Hebrews. Something that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand. It is that the work of Jesus Christ is finished. As Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. It is done. He is no longer standing because his work is done. There's nothing else to be done. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. It's a statement about not just his work being done, it's a statement about his deity. He is seated where he deserves to be seated. He is seated in the place that is rightfully his, that in eternity past he did not see equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, even though that was rightly his place. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 13, what is he doing from that time? Waiting. He is waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Again, a quote from Psalm 110.1. From that time when he first ascended, when he first took his seat at the right hand of the Father, he is waiting victoriously. You see, as Jesus Christ sits there at the right hand of the Father, there's no implication here of doubt concerning the outcome of the waiting. It's not that he's sitting there chewing his, his fingernails, twiddling his, his thumbs, nervous that this might not come to pass. Rather, he is sitting in confidence. He is sitting in, as a victor with eager anticipation, ready to take hold of what is his to bring the kingdom. Until his enemies are made his footstool, you see, he is coming again, not as a sacrifice, but as a triumphant conqueror. Until his enemies are made his footstool. Just this morning, going through the book of Joshua, in Joshua 10, 24, after conquering this coalition of kings, and that, that battle where the Lord made the sun stand still, and Joshua has chased them and he's conquered them and, and he brings all these kings before him and he brings the leaders of Israel. And do you remember what he has them do? Put your foot on their neck. It's a sign of complete and utter defeat. It is over. 
That's the same idea here. Till your enemies are made your footstool. His enemies are defeated. There is no hope for counterattack. There is no chance. Here's a question, though. Who are these enemies? I think immediately our mind jumps to, well, obviously, the, the enemies of Christ would be the devil, it would be demons. But the reality is it doesn't stop there. His enemies are all those who have not believed in him. You see, I think that's where we often fall short. We fail to recognize how big of a deal sin is. Sin is not just a little deal. Sin makes you an enemy of God and of Christ. You are his enemy. And, and at the same time, that makes the cross so much sweeter because Jesus Christ died for his enemies. But all those who do not turn to Jesus Christ in faith, they are his enemies. At the same moment as the devil and the demons as are made the footstool of Jesus Christ, so will all those who do not place their faith in Christ. Do you see how this adds weight to our calling as Christians? Do you see how this adds beauty and power to your faith in Jesus Christ? You have gone from an enemy to a friend, not just a friend, but a son who cries out, Abba, Father! And all of those around us who do not know Jesus Christ, they will one day face his full wrath. They will be thrown into hell itself. As my grandpa often would say, the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today people are going into eternity as an enemy of God, condemned to hell from their sin because God is just. And we sit here with the gospel, the power to save, and we're too scared to speak up because we don't want to offend them. Romans 8, 7 says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile. Verse 14. Verse, verse 14 is really the foundation of verses 12 and 13. How is it that Jesus Christ has ascended on high, that he has sat at the right hand of the Father, it is because by this one offering he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It is because he has brought salvation. Verses 12 and 13 is possible because verse 14 is a reality. Jesus Christ has ascended as a victor because he has shed his blood for sinners. 
And by that one offering, he has perfected forever. That is positional. Before God, if your faith is in Christ, you are righteous. Salvation is yours. Romans 8 speaks even of glorification as as current. You are glorified. It is as if it has already happened. And yet at the same time, we all recognize that we still have a sin nature and we live in a sinful world. And we still sin. And so at the same time as we have been perfected forever, before God, we stand just and righteous. At the same time, we are also being sanctified. That's our practical reality. God is working in us through the word, molding us into his image, changing us. I hope that I am more like God Uh, Christ today that I have grown from when I first got saved as a five-year-old. I hope that there has been progress there. I hope that there has been progress in your life, that you have grown, that you are being sanctified. It's Jesus Christ who has done this. One time, by his sacrifice, So here we see the triumph of Jesus Christ. He is the victor. He has triumphed. He has brought salvation. And next we see the testimony of the Holy Spirit. How do I how do I know that this is true? But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. Because the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God. In fact, here, the Holy Spirit is, the, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant, passage that we covered back in Hebrews 8. But he quotes it as if it is spoken directly by the Holy Spirit, going directly to the source. The Holy Spirit is our witness to this. He has said this. Before, he said this. This is his past promise. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. This is the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. This is where we see God doing what the law could never do. The law can't change. It can't bring about that growth. But God can. And so rather than the law changing us from the outside in, God changes us from the inside out. He puts the law in their hearts and minds, I will write them. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will remember no more. You see, that is the core of the gospel. Rather than remembering my sin, God remembers his promise and he remembers Christ's work. Because that's the great problem, is it not? Going all the way back to the the garden. In Genesis 3, as sin enters the world, it is sin that separates man from God. 
It is sin that separates sinful man from a holy God. It is our sin that condemns us to hell. And God, as a just judge, He cannot overlook our sin because that would be unjust. It is unjust to let someone who is guilty go free. If God is just, He must deal with sin. But God, in His great love, rather than just condemning us and throwing us away, rather He deals with our sin because of His great love. He sent Jesus Christ the Son of God, who died in our place. You see, sin must be dealt with. That's the great problem here. How can a just God stay just and forgive sin? He deals with sin. He doesn't ignore it. He pays the penalty that we owe. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Every single one of us is a sinner. In fact, I would submit that if you're honest with yourself and your heart of hearts, you don't need the Bible to tell you you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You know if you're honest with yourself. It doesn't take a big sin to be a sinner. It takes one sin to be a sinner. And one sin, no matter how small in your eyes, separates you from a holy God. And all have sinned. Both you and I. And the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, what is rightfully mine because of my sin, is death and separation from God. Well, well, can't I just be good and eventually one day my good works will outweigh my bad works? No, because you're a sinner. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Even the best of the good works that you do are stained with sin because you are a sinner. There's no hope that you can save yourself. And yet God, as the Holy Spirit says, I will do this. I will put my law in their hearts and I, and in their minds, I will write them and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He shed his blood in your place where your blood deserved to be shed. He took your punishment. And this is the core of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus died for you. He has triumphed so that you can triumph through him. This is the core of the gospel. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. It is finished. It is done. They have been dealt with. And Christ has sat down victorious at the right hand of the Father. So then what? Is 
As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You might say this morning, well, it can't be that easy, right? John 3.16, that's a, that's a kid's verse. For God so loved the world, you know, we, we learned that from the very beginning. It can't be that easy that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And brothers and sisters, it is that easy. And that is the beauty of the gospel, that God has done this for you and Christ so that you don't have to do anything. All you do is believe. In verse 18, now where there is remission of these sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Where sin is eradicated, sin no longer has to be dealt with. The eternal triumph of Jesus Christ means eternal life for all who are in Christ. No more sacrifice is needed because the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient. So, as we come to the end of this passage, this is a message of gospel truth preached under the weight of eternity. And my prayer, my desire here is twofold. First, if you are here this morning, maybe this is all new to you, or maybe, maybe you've heard it before, but maybe this morning it clicked in a way that it's never clicked before. If you are here this morning and you have never place your faith in Christ alone, you've never been forgiven of your sins by faith in Christ alone, then I would call on you this morning to believe. Even in just a second during the closing song, as we confess the gospel together in song once again, I would encourage you to come to the front. And I would love nothing more than to take you to my office and to answer any questions that you may have. Or after the service, seek me out. And I would love nothing more than to sit down with a Bible and to answer your questions and to point you to Christ and to show you the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, one of my fears and my great burden this morning is that we have grown cold to the gospel of Jesus Christ for those of us who are in Christ. And so my prayer over this passage this week has been this, that may this simple gospel message reignite your passion for the cross. May this, message add, may this passage add weight to your calling as a Christian. May it add urgency to your responsibility as a witness. And may it add sweetness to your privilege in worship. Because the truth of the gospel is a message that changes lives. It is a truth that gives perspective and purpose and meaning to everything that we do. Everything that we do as Christians is defined by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. 
This is the most important message in the world, and may none of us take it for granted. And no matter how many times we hear a simple gospel message, may we never grow cold, but may our hearts rejoice all the more at what God has done for us in Christ.